All right, it's another week on the RC Conversation podcast. Uh, this week, we kind of follow up with last week uh, with a question about Richard's definition of a heretic versus an apostate. Uh, then we go on and just talk about uh, really kind of the direction we go is looking at just um, who do we respect? Who do we value their their teaching, their opinion, their uh, when it comes to church leaders and um who is it that we're letting influence our life and why? Uh, so that's kind of the direction we're going. Uh, as always, if you have any questions or comments, email us at the rcconversation uh, at gmail.com. And if you want to leave comments on iTunes or on SoundCloud, uh, there are sections where you can do that. We invite that. We would love to hear from you. Uh, so uh, continue to listen. Keep sharing. Uh, tell other people about it. And uh, please subscribe. All right. Enjoy. So we're going to start off this week looking at uh, kind of following up on something that we did in our last podcast. In the last podcast, we talked about uh, false teachers, heretics, heresy, things of that nature. Um, and we got a response from a mutual friend named Job uh, who basically said that uh, he agreed with everything except for your definition of heretic. He said that your definition of a heretic was someone who was, you know, someone who uh, – had left the faith or was, you know, kind of left the church or unchristian was really the idea of apostate, uh, whereas a heretic is someone who presents a false doctrine, really, even within the church and historically so. Um, you know, heretical ideas usually come from inside the church rather than outside the church. So it's someone who still considers themselves a Christian. Uh, they've just gone a direction uh, that is outside of uh, orthodox belief. Um, so what do you what do you say? Well, first I got I got the email from Job also, and it was very uh, well well thought out, well reasoned. He uh, he, he wanted to know him. He's that's him. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, we're very thankful for that response. Um, he actually, he, I would agree with what he said. What, what, what I, but in my my definition on that on that episode, I did uh, use you know heretic in, in probably a, a very general sense, almost in a. Uh, just uh, walking around this, walking around definition. Um, but he's correct about there is difference between heretic and apostate, and probably in everyday life in the church, or or just um, just being around life, life in general, you're probably not going to see a a real difference between those two how you handle them. Uh, however, uh, Joe's right. The definition of apostates are different than heretics, and he introduces that category. They probably I should have last uh, last week, so I appreciate it. And uh, there's great feedback and anything that makes our show better, and Joe did that with that, that comment, so we're very appreciative of that. But he's right. Heretics and apostates are not the same thing, uh, but you often do treat them the same way. So that was a, a great uh, response, and we're very appreciative. All right. Well, let me just go ahead and say this uh, to anyone who happens to be listening. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can either uh, res- put them on uh, uh, iTunes or SoundCloud. There are spots where you can leave comments, or you can email us at thercconversation at gmail.com. Uh, and we'll use those to kind of help guide our, our conversation sometime, or, you know, we'll try to respond and, uh, 
kind of see what happens. But um, this week, I've got a, a uh, what I want to talk about kind of goes somewhat along with with last week. Um, in a bit, uh, what are, what I kind of want to talk to you about is the idea of uh, really within Christianity and really within all Christians, but also within the leadership of Christianity, leadership of the church, pastors, preachers, teachers, um, the people that we respect. Um, and not even just like, hey, I respect you because you're a human being, but like the, the other teachers that we look up to, or the other pastors that we look up to, or the other social leaders that we look up to, uh, and why we look up to them. Um, because I'll be honest with you, I mean, I see a lot of people within Christianity who look up to people that um, I just think, why? You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, let me just use this as as my as my I guess opening illustration, just kind of illustrate the point. Uh, Andy Stanley is a huge uh, figure uh, within at least certain areas of evangelical Christianity here in America. He's got a huge church, uh, huge following. He writes books. He helped. Uh, established the Orange uh, Children's Material and Orange Convention and student camps. All this stuff flows from his church and from uh, really his leadership. Uh, even though they're on separate thing, uh, everything still really kind of flows out of, uh, they're still super connected. Um, and yet Stanley has said things repeatedly that I would argue are unbiblical. And even uh, a video that popped up, I'm sure it's been on, online for a while, but I just saw it. Uh, we're here. Yeah. Makes the the argument that we don't believe the Bible because it's God's word. Um, at least you know the Old Testament things of that nature. We believe it because Jesus makes reference to it, uh, and he says even goes so far to say that if you know the the idea of creationism, uh, a seven day creation is a silly idea and it's it's a crazy story that's really unbelievable and even aligns it with other creation myths of other religions. Um, but he says the only reason we believe it, not because it's the word of God, uh, but because Jesus made reference to it. And for me, that opens up a ton of, what about everything in the Old Testament Jesus didn't make reference to? Does that mean that it's, it's invalid? What about the rest of the New Testament yeah. that Jesus didn't speak in? Uh, or is that invalid? And what about topics such as just because it's, it's big in our, our society right now, uh, homosexuality and things like that that Jesus never spoke about. Does that mean that everything else the Bible says about that is irrelevant because the only things that have validity according to him are the Gospels? And at what point does that lose its validity? Because, I mean, honestly, if it's too crazy to believe that God created the world in seven days or in six days and on the seventh he rested, how crazy is it to believe that he came down to earth in the form of a man uh, and died for our sins and rose again? Um, if one's too unbelievable, the other's right there behind it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. You were ready for that one, weren't you? And yeah. <laughs> You're fired up. You still get me fired up. Uh, absolutely. And yeah, and, I, and let's, and I, I, I agree with, I agree with your thoughts. Um, I think that, but in, in the broader question, I think the topic is, is a really good one, um, is, it's who, who we should admire and why. Um, Andy Stanley um, is admired mainly for one big reason: innovation. He, he, he's, a, he's an innovator. Um, he's an innovator in in uh, church growth, and of course, uh, 
you know, everything directly to passion conferences that kind of came out of his ministry because he's, you know, good friends with, with Louis Giglio and that crew there and, and everything that kind of, so he definitely directly has a huge influence in, in contemporary Christian music and, and, and college ministries, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the reason that he has innovation, so the reason he has respect from people, admiration, um, Unfortunately, it's nothing to do with his view on the answer of scripture or view on anything theological. Nothing. Um, that, that in itself is the problem, I think, is that we have, uh, we've taken, we've compartmentalized our heroes. It's one thing to, have to look at somebody and respect them for one, for something. You know, you could respect somebody because they are, in great physical shape, you know, and so you, but their life is terrible if you admire them because they, you know, they can, you know, run fast or they have great conditioning or whatever. That's fine. But we do that in pastors. We say, well, we like this person for that and that person for this and they're creative or they're, you know, mission minded, but they don't use the word very much. And what you do is you, you, you divide people up in what you like and don't like without realizing that it all comes from the same place. It all comes from uh, a mind and heart that's been transformed by uh, the gospel. And um, so, in other words, we, we pick and choose things that we like, and we discard what we don't like, and you become, you become a fan of the person um, instead of a, you know, maybe a student of them, to where you find yourself defending everything about them when it's, you probably shouldn't. And he's a good example of that. He's a really good example of that. There's other guys too. These are an example of that. Like, for example, Robert Schuler. Robert Schuler is probably the, the true father of the church growth movement. And there are people who loved him for the fact that he was, uh, you know, the Crystal Cathedral. He grew, and he grew churches in Southern California. But theologically, he's a train wreck, you know? And, uh, he's, he's an example of that too. It's all over the place. So, yeah, pastors need to be wiser in who they are fans of. Well, one thing along with this, and, uh, I don't want to beat up on Stanley. I mean, uh, no, no, man. but I come from a church, uh, previously where he was, uh, in kind of his, his mindset and his theology and everything was just kind of uh, idolized to an extent. Um, and it came with the, the statement of, well, he's got a big church, so he must be doing something right. Or he's got a big church. Uh, he must know what he's doing or he's, uh, you know, he's so innovative and, and he's already done this. So, uh, we'll, let's just kind of copy, uh, what he does. And it's not even just Stanley. There's lots of people out there where, um, and honestly, just throughout, you know, my, my 15 years of serving in ministry, I've heard different people say, well, why should I study the Greek? Someone else has already done it. So let me just, let me just read what they've done. Or why should we, um, you know, why not just copy Rick Warren or copy this other person? You know, it's working for them. And yet there's there's no uh, – it seems that the reason why they're idolized isn't because they're people who stand for truth or stand on truth or do things with integrity. Not these men don't have integrity, but uh, the reason why people, at least the people that I've encountered, seem to stand with these people is because they've had some kind of – uh, visual or physical or earthly success. Um, yeah. That's not based on necessarily the power of God. It's not based on the moving of the Holy Spirit. It's not based on God's word. In fact, with a lot of these people, uh, they they mock to an extent holding up God's word. You know, I, I think it was yeah. Driscoll at one point who 
mocked uh, maybe John MacArthur, who said, you know, he views the Trinity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Um, and, and, you know, even Stanley uh, talked about the inerrancy of Scripture and how that's not what we stand on. Or um, It seems that a lot of these people that are, are held up are people who, in my view, would have a lower view of Scripture. Whereas, especially yeah. with younger with younger pastors, whereas people like MacArthur, uh, you know, someone who's preached through the whole New Testament within the forty years of their of their ministry, uh, is viewed as kind of an old fuddy duddy. Why? Yeah, he's still, he's, he's seventy five years old and still preaching, you know, two hours every Sunday. Uh, he's, he's, he's amazing. He's, he's a beast. What he is? <laughs> yeah, he has a reputation to be a fuddy duddy, right? Well, what do you what do you think is the the essence behind that? Behind you know, let's uh, honor or magnify or lift up uh, the people who is, is is it just the idea that we ca- get caught up in such an earthly idea of success? Is it we have a wrong focus? Is our yeah. focus on instead of building up I mean, people and glorifying God, we just want to build big churches? I mean, what's the? Well, I mean, can well, I mean, think about it. I mean, the pastoral role is is maybe the least modern job in the world, right? I mean. You can't really quantify what we do, and in some cases, you can't qualify either. In other words, um, you know, it, there's nothing truly biblical that says a guy who pastors a church of say five thousand is a better pastor than a church a guy who pastors a church of fifty. The the standard is faithfulness, and it's very possible. There's plenty of examples of guys who have been in churches of fifty people. I mean, Eddie Mitchell, one of my favorite pastors of of the 20th century, I felt that he ran a church of 150. He was in some big cities. This is Chicago. He's in Toronto. He never had a church over 150. And if I'm wrong about that, some please correct me, but I think that's right. He's never, and he'd be considered a small church pastor by today's standards. But I do tell you, Tozier is, 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 is a, in a lot a theological, you know, just a figurehead. I mean, in the 20th century, he's beloved, yeah. you know. So classic. Yeah, but he, he, but no one would question his faithfulness. And his impact, of course, through his writings has been, you know, much further, much wider than his pastoral ministry. Well, you've had a number of pastors, uh, Mr. Joel Osteen, you know, who has a huge church, but you would really question his commitment to, to the Bible. And so, but so, it, it, but in every other profession, just about, I mean, we, there's a, there's a, there's a factory mentality. It's how many products you, you put out, how many, how much production you can have. And in pastoral ministry, it's really hard to do that. I mean, we can count members, you know, church members or disciples you make or churches you plant, and there's things that count. But, I mean, really the work, is it's a spiritual work. There's physical means of doing it. You preach and you pray and you do those things, but it's spiritual work. So when you go and you're able to find a way, whether it's through a successful church growth guy or whatever, to where you can quantify what you do, it's able to bring some modern understanding to a very ancient job. And that's a challenge. I, I think that, I think for most pastors, that's what it is. I, I think most pastors really want to be faithful. Um, but they're so program hardwired to think, you know, like the, the pastoral job is like every other job out there. And it's not, it's a unique calling. And, um, so we, we want to see a pastor as a CEO, we want to see him as a guru, we want to see him as a efficiency expert or whatever, and it's just not like that. And so I think that's what it is. I, I think most people, they just don't know where their eyes should be as far as people they should admire. So 
yeah, I, I think it's, I think most people are honest in trying to do well. It's just they don't know what pastoring well looks like. Well, let me ask you, why do you think, I understand, you know, uh, pastoring and, and preaching, teaching isn't necessarily a quantifiable uh, job. It's not like you're, you know, building widgets and you've got to build a thousand widgets in a day and so you know what you're doing. Um, and so, you know, numbers and things like that are, are something that is uh, easy to look at. Uh, but why do you think it's so, besides the idea that we're human and we're all fallen, that it's so easy for pastors to get, uh, or church leaders, even people within the church, uh, to get so enamored with uh, size and creativity and, uh, you know, uh, just having a full house rather than uh, seeing life changed. No seeing. Oh, I, yeah, I mean, well, I think what what country, <laughs> what country has the modern church growth movement manifest? Yeah, much of the principles came from the mission field. You know, if, if you ever study Gavin like Don McGavran, you know, yeah, they always study those principles from from the mission field. But where did the church growth movement kind of get its, you know, its focal point is in the United States. It's it, 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 the U.S. Movement a lot of ways. Well, what's the sense of our, of our country, right? We we want things bigger, we want things better, we want things now. And so a lot of it, a lot of it is we've actually baptized the, the consumer culture that we are in. You know, we baptized um, consumption. <laughs> and so, in other words, we, we we can't if we evaluate. Okay, Walmart. You know, people. I don't know. Well, this is not a fan of Walmart, but. The success of Walmart is very simple. They buy things in mass, right, and in large quantities, and they sell it and strip down stores and they make a lot of money doing it. Well, that has worked for them, obviously, in this country. So take the same mentality to church. You know, let's just as many people as possible, let's throw it out there and try to see if we can pack as many folks into the pews, regardless of what we're teaching, as long as we're able to. Another thing has been in this country's marketing we can market and push to their hearts what they want, and they buy different products in the gospel. And I, I, I just, I think it's a, I think, I, I know the church growth movement is an overflow of of marketing philosophy. There's no question. A lot of the guys deny it is, but it isn't. It's the same thing. It doesn't mean it's all bad. It just means that if that's what your core is, you've got problems. The gospel has to be your core. And so that's where the problems come from. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this about church uh, growth. I understand I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush uh, when I when I ask this question, and so I admit that at, at the very front. Um, but would would you say that church growth is uh, the church growth movement? Not not doing things to see your church grow, but just kind of the church growth movement. All these books, all these uh, ideas and, and ideologies uh, would be more man centered or more God centered. Um, well, again, paint, you're painting a broad way, you know, the broad, broad, I don't know. Okay, I'm going to say man-centered, but I think that most people honestly believe they're being God-centered. Because, and this is not going to be waffling here, that I'm defending people, but I'm not. It, when you think in your mind that the number one thing that you're responsible for and to the point where you become utilitarian and pragmatic. You'll do anything. 
just to get more people in the pews, then you think probably that's what God wants. So you think you're being God-centered, especially if you're a church or a movement where the Word of God is held in a lower standard than, say, a lot than it needs to be, then in your mind, you think you're being God-centered, but in fact, you're being man-centered. That's how most people are. Most Again, most people aren't entering the ministry trying to plant man-centered churches or pastor man-centered congregations. It's just that we don't, again, we don't know where I seem to be in order to have a God-honoring church. Why do you think, you say, you said that previously, you said again, that we don't know where I yeah. Why do you think we don't know? Yeah. Especially as pastors. Yeah, um, well, I think it's, it's kind of, well, it's probably a lot of things. I mean, I, I think this conversation, we, 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 we kind of hit a lot of those things. I mean, you know, we, we've devalued the Bible. We've, we've, um, we've made other things other than the Word of God, um, matter. But, I mean, I think, I think part of it is, as Americans, uh, you know, we want quick results. Everything we do is quick. You know, we, we are a, you know, Amer- uh, our business, America's business is business, is the old motto. That we want it fast, we want that time is money. Um, so going through and reading the Bible to learn how to be a pastor is hard. I mean, there's, you know, there's a pastoral epistle, there's, there's 66 books, and you have to learn the context, you have to learn original languages, you need to know where to, where you know where to gather your theology from, and it's a slow process. Um, well, if you turn around, if you can go to Christian bookstores and get you know ten ways to be a better pastor, ten ways to grow a church, fifteen ways to you know double your congregation size in a year, and and so you get you want the quick results. You take that in, and what you do is you may even be successful numerically or whatever, but you're very shallow. Your theology is shallow, your commitment is shallow, your understanding is shallow. So um, so then it, it just leads to a, a, a your eyes focusing on things that doesn't need to focus on. Focusing on what's cool now, what's popular now. And the Bible's a pretty ancient book. <laughs> you know, it's still true. It's always been true. Um, we want what's hip today. And that's that's I love our country, Amen. But that's that's America. We're we're a young country, and we want what's fit today. And it just I think it's a simple carryover to the pastoral office. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this: Why do you think? Because I think this, and you made mention of it, uh, that the Bible has been devalued in the church. Why? Why do you think that that it has? I mean, I know you've 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 said that you know yeah. it's difficult. Not it's not difficult to study, but it takes time. It takes effort. It takes. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say my answer to that, and I want to explain it because if it's taken out of context, people think I'm gonna say something wrong. Okay, so I want I want I want I want to people to hear everything I'm saying here because there's better self help books out there than the Bible. Okay, here's what I mean. Most people, unfortunately, when you focus, focus it only on the church growth type stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, the churches like that tend to be very principalized in their preaching, very self-help. We won't call it that, but it's self-help. Okay. 
Well, in reality, the Bible is not a self-help book. It's, <laughs> it's the Word of God. The center of it is Christ. The gospel is what is what is the whole thing points to the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. There are plenty of things to learn about being a parent or a, a good child or a good neighbor, of course. But but they're hard to find. They're hard to mine out, and so you're able to get that end, that pragmatic end, more easily by either one using the Bible to come up with catchy sermons, and just pull principles out and throw it out there and miss the whole meaning of the text. Or secondly, you know, the Bible altogether <laughs> and just, you know, uh, just preach um, little things, terminates for Christianettes, just little mini talks about being a good person. I mean, um, honestly, uh, conservative churches have done the first, and liberal churches have done the second. And um, that's stereotypes. That's, that's, that's a broad brush, but that's how bills happen. So the Bible is, it's, it's true. It's ancient truth, though. I mean, that it has universal principles to it. it it's, 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 uh, eternal. So you don't always find in the text that, that one verse or one thing that answers your question 100% directly. They say, well, it could be, okay, I'm in this circumstance. I just need to trust God. Yeah. You know? Well, if I go if I go to Barnes and Noble, I'll find a book that gives me ten ways to improve my circumstance, you know. And so that and that again, that's carry over into the pulpit. And um, that's so uh, so when I say that, I'll be very careful. The Bible help it does help us, but it's not a self help book. And that's what people when people think they go to church to get help for where they are, because churches like this tend to preach only where you are at that time. They don't think where's the person going to be a million years from now. It's where they're going to be on Monday, and and that leads to practicality, but also leads to shallowness. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I look at the way that the the Bible has been devalued in our uh, churches in America, and it it, it, uh, it kills me. You know, I've been told by pastors that. We shouldn't teach people how to study their Bible because it'll turn them into Pharisees and that you can love Jesus without uh, knowing the Bible. Uh, and you can love Jesus. I mean, there are people who, all over the world who don't have Bibles, who are believers, who love Jesus. And But that's... that's but, you know what, but you know what? If you went to them and said, hey, do you want to copy the Bible? Go walk 10 miles, you know, and they're going to do it. Definitely. Yeah. But it kills me when, yeah. when you hear people say that. It kills me when I was at the Orange Conference, uh, not by choice, uh, a year ago or two years ago, and uh, they announced that they're going to partner with T.D. Jakes, who uh, yeah. I know he's altered some of his views on the, the Trinity lately, but he's always held... <laughs> sure he has. <laughs> sure he has. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. He's always held a an unbiblical, heretical view of the Trinity, uh, and even though now he says that he's changed it, he still uses the same language. So you really don't know. Because he still uses his same heretical language because he said that fits where he's at. And maybe that's true, but I don't know. Um, but he also preaches a, a, a prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel. Uh, anyways, they show a video of him saying that they're going to be partnering with him. And then all these churches just erupt. And it's just it's so sad that churches would partner with an organization that partners with uh, – Basically, a known uh, heretic. Same with Lifeway selling his books. 
you know, just because yeah. he's popular. Does, Life, does Lifeway sell these books? Oh, yeah, Lifeway sells T.D. Jakes. Okay. I, I wouldn't worry about that, yeah. Uh, well. I, don't, I don't know if they sell Joyce Myers, but um, well, let me ask you this. I know that you're not the biggest Beth Moore fan, but what do you think of uh, Beth Moore joining up with uh, Joyce Myers for uh, some kind of uh, women's um, doing conferences? It's not, well, well, no, I don't like it. I mean, I, 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 I'm not... Not only, not only if, I, if I have any issue with Beth Moore, it's just the fact that she becomes a, a pastor for many, many women more than their own pastor. That, that's not by, if I have a, even a veiled criticism of that. Um, no, I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, the, the reason, the reason people do that, it's very simple. It's why, it's why passion will have, you know, Chris Tomlin and Charlie Hall and all the music guys, David Crowder, but also John Piper for years because then you're able to hit different audiences and we have a larger crowd. That's why you do it. You do it, you do it for promotion sake. You know, you have to have a hit line, you have to have, so putting Beth Moore and George Meyer in the same bill, you're able to draw both Charismatics and Baptists. You know, and yeah, but- it's the same thing with T. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that, again, marketing. <laughs> it's a marketing decision. And, um, that that that's where the deeper problem is for me is that kind of thinking that it doesn't go back to your gospel centeredness. So it goes back to what I mentioned. It goes back to what can we do to promote us the best? And while I have no problem doing quality, you also have to have integrity. And yeah, I have a concern with that. I, I read about that. I didn't like it. Um. Let me ask you this: as as a teacher, as a preacher, let's say you were invited uh, in your local area uh, in Sioux City to uh, do like this citywide conference, and it was going to be yeah. uh, the main speakers would be you and uh, the the Mormon pastor of the Mormon church down the street. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Let me ask you, I'm not right or wrong, because I, we would both say that that right. could not do it, that there's definitely a wrongness there. Um, but sure. would, do you think, kind of in the mindset of being held accountable as a pastor and a teacher and a leader, um, that if people went, because, well, Richard's there. We know Richard teaches the Bible. We know Richard preaches the Bible. Right, 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 right. Sure. Uh, and yet they hear this false teaching, this false doctrine. They get lured, lured away to that. Are you responsible yeah. in a sense? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you are. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, <laughs> at least, in, at least indirectly. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you would be directly responsible if you allow the teaching to your church, but again, you kind of did it by a proxy there. Um, I mean, the bar question would be what what I preach and something like that. I don't know if you, that was the question, but it, it would depend, you know. I mean, would, I, mean I, mean, well, yeah, I would say probably not. But you hold some but I can just sort of say, again, say, okay, I'll go and preach the real gospel for 15 minutes and then, you know, be able to preach light into darkness, maybe. But I would be uncomfortable with it. Um, but I mean, it doesn't mean everybody who maybe did it. Um, would, you know, they could do it in, in sort of their own, and freedom of Christ do it perhaps, but I would struggle with it. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. That's a, that's a real conundrum that could happen, especially going forward as church in areas are more plur, pluralistic with, 
um, different groups <laughs> that gain popularity in religious religious circles. So yeah, it's it's that's a, that's a good, it's very possible. Yeah, but I'd, I'd, be, I'd be very uncomfortable with it. Yeah, I just know from everything I've seen on Joyce Myers or read about her or even heard her say, she definitely preaches a, a health, wealth, prosperity gospel, which is, in my mind, a false gospel. Um, she is – so many things of her theology are just just not biblical. Uh, yeah. And, and yet you've got – and I mean – for for most Baptist women, Beth Moore is the fourth person of the Trinity. Uh, she's very popular. Put it that way, she's very it? popular. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm not trying to mock her by saying that. I just she's super popular. <laughs> um, and yet, so you're gonna have all these women who love Beth Moore who are gonna go and yeah, and and not just hear Beth Moore or some of these other women or whoever else, but I mean the other uh, there's other women speaking, but the two headliners are. Uh, Beth yeah. and Joyce Myers, and so for an equal amount of teaching, with an equal amount of of, of um, focus given to, and authority given to, and respect given to, and position given to, they're going to listen to Joyce Myers too. Who and and one thing I've noticed when you look at, at false doctrines or, or heretics or heretical teachers uh, or false teachers, um, like ninety percent of what they say, you're not going to have a problem with. It's going to be percent that you don't catch or that creeps in or you say, you know what? That makes sense, even though it's not necessarily biblical. And there are going to be women who who get pulled away uh, into some form of uh, not all the women. I'm not saying that all the women and it might even be a small percent. One woman. I don't know. But there at least at least there's a potential that that they will be pulled away into uh, a teaching and a doctrine and theology that's just not biblical. Even if it just means they get called up and they say, "Oh, well, I like Joyce Myers. Let me go buy her books. Let me listen to her." Yeah, yeah. So. And that's that's a real issue. It's a real issue. Like, um, it, it's one thing that I've that I've learned over over the years. I mean, I like to read. I'm a, I'm a book nerd. I rarely now will recommend an author card watch. I, I I have to really. Read a lot of stuff, stuff by one person. Like, I'll, for example, I'll, I'll recommend John McCarthy, you know, because we know it's about, and, you know, but, but you'll find, in, um, like, for example, I, I like C.S. Lewis. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. Um, C.S. Lewis, to the earliest Christian life, had some beliefs that we would say were at least not orthodox. And it's always debated about if you look at, you know, mere Christianity opens the door for the possibility of, of, uh, non-Christians, uh, a certain form of universalism that, uh, he may very well have, uh, at least espoused in some form or fashion that he later would not. Well, that book's a very influential book and there's, there's a one section where it's like, well, what is this? You know, it's crazy. Um, so if you, so that's something you want to be careful of is you go to a conference and there's, you know, Joyce Meyer, Beth Moore, and you know, here's Joyce Meyer speak. And I've, I've had friends of mine who are fans of hers who, who have been able to listen to her, be edified and, and somehow not fall into, uh, well, I don't recommend that <laughs> by any means. You open yourself up where a person who is a fan of say Beth Moore can go in and they can buy books on material and 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 be in really 
do some damage to the person's spiritual walk. It's absolutely possible. And that's the deepest danger is so many people in the church now have such low discernment. Discernment's not even, you know, the discernment requires you to be critical and nobody wants to be critical of anything. So um, discernment is something that, that we just don't have in the church anymore. So, yeah, that that's the biggest issue. Biggest issue is do you include them all together? And that's that would that's that's a scary thing. Would you right? Yeah. Uh, I think that we sound like two eighty year olds yelling at people to get off our yard. I was born eighty, man. You know what I mean? Like anyone. I mean, people who know, it's just like friends of mine. Like the the fact that there would be a podcast and well, we talk about this topic and different things um, using words like modern and talking about C.S. Lewis and shock. Anybody that we do this, <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, yeah, trendiness is probably not our gift. <laughs> no, no, it's not. No. And the thing that's so sad is, Cam, probably 20 years now will be the exact same. One day, everybody's going to catch up, Cam. It's going to be okay. Well, in 20 years, we might be right in the middle of the tribulation, waiting on Jesus to come back. Well, we can open up the floor for that. He wants an email to bring that up. <laughs> it's very possible, I suppose. It's very, very possible. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty chaotic world up there right now. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, um, I'm not a, you know, day trader or anything like that. But, what's that? A hardcore dispensationalist. Well, I'm probably I'm not. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could, I, I'll put this way. I'll put this way. I can understand why people, um, why there's an uneasiness of, because uh, the way that I am, you know, people, people who read the newspaper, of course, what is that, right? Look at Facebook, get their news, and look out the window, and think that the world's going bad because of what they read in the paper. I'm very critical of that, I really am, because it's so, Journalists aren't really good. They 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 strain to get a narrative that they like. You know, they, they have product to sell, and they do that. Anyone who doubts that, they do that. <laughs> um, so you know, but I can understand why people today are more uneasy than they've been in a long time. So you're going to see a lot more of the um, I'll say rapture, rapture talk, maybe um, heating back up. You'll see that. That'll be an interesting, interesting podcast to discuss. Yeah. Uh, well, let me close with this one question. Just uh, yes or no, uh, no explanation. This will be our last question. Maybe it'll be a teaser. I don't know. Um, will there be a rapture before the seven-year tribulation? Oh, before the seven-year tribulation. Uh, I don't think so. I can't say yes or no because I'm not, I'm not settled on the issue. But I don't think so today. Okay. Well, we'll today. just leave it at that. So. We'll, uh, we'll figure out that question and those answers later. Well, you, ha- you have to answer that. No, yeah, I- this is just the energy. You need to answer that. Is there anything? Uh, <laughs> you want me asking questions, Cam? We'll just uh, turn off iPads. I will say that a couple of years ago that uh, I transitioned my belief from a uh, more traditional 
premillennial rapture to the more uh, historical uh, post-millennial rapture, uh, if there's a rapture at all. Uh, so I'll leave that right there. But um, all right, man. So you're post-millennial. Cam, Cam's post-millennial. Is that right? Post. No, not post-millennial. Oh, you said post-millennial. Okay, I thought you said you're post-millennial. Post- we have a post-trib. Post-trib. Okay, this is a really fun podcast. So, so. Uh, all right, I'll talk to you again next week, man. All right, please subscribe on iTunes. We'll talk to you next week. All right, later. Okay, bye.